This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. We're talking today with the Reverend Dr. Dirk Bergsma, Professor Emeritus of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Dirk has taught at Westminster Seminary, California since 1982 and is author of Redemption, the Triumph of God's Great Plan. And this title is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. Hi, Dirk, and welcome to Office Hours. Well, I'm very, very pleased to be with you, Scott. We're here to talk today about preaching. What is it? And particularly, I want to get first off at the whole question, and we'll get to this, of the negative connotations or associations with the word preaching. But first of all, when we say preaching, when you say preaching, what do you mean? Well, I mean the official public proclamation of the message of sacred scripture to the glory of God and as a call to repentance and a life of faith on the part of those who hear. That, of course, is the the short answer. The longer answer would have to include the presence of the Holy Spirit in all of our preaching because it's the Holy Spirit who has inspired the Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit who gives the unction for the preacher himself on whom the preacher is dependent in order to proclaim the truth of the Scripture. And without the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no positive response because the Holy Spirit touches the hearts of those who hear to respond in faith and to shape their lives in accordance with his will. We live in a culture in which people hear announcements all the time, and sometimes announcements of good news, sometimes announcements of bad news, and then attendant to those announcements are a call of some sort or other to do something. So those kinds of communications are not unfamiliar, and people don't react necessarily uh, negatively to all of those announcements. And yet, when we use the word preaching, there is, I think, in our culture, something of a negative association. I was at the Crystal Cathedral a few months back, and I heard uh, Reverend Schuler stand in the pulpit and ask if what he was doing was giving a sermon. And he said, no, no one wants to be preached to. And he was playing on the negative associations, the connotations that preaching has in our culture. Why is that? Why does preaching have such a negative sound? Well, the term itself has been hijacked, of course, uh, to apply to a, a meaning that really is not true to biblical preaching. But it seems there's a connotation of promoting unwelcomed advice, that, especially advice that restricts people's freedoms. And uh, it's a bit unfortunate that that has happened in our development of language, in our communication with people. But uh, that just points up the fact that we had better be clear about what we mean by preaching and its direct relationship to the authority of the Bible. So when people hear the word preaching, they think of someone being bossy and nosy. You've heard the old expression, you know, he's quit preaching and gone to meddling. So you, so they think of those kinds of things. Uh, they think of restriction on their movements and actions and decisions. And so they, they don't really think, perhaps, 
if, particularly if they're outside the church, but even if they're inside the church, when they hear the word preaching, they don't necessarily, first of all, think of the announcement of good news. So contrast that a little bit with the New Testament notion of preaching and proclamation. Well, to see preaching as passing advice from a safe distance and coercing or influencing people in the direction you're going, of course, originates with a sense of an authority figure, passing judgment to those who are subordinate. But it's really quite the opposite because true preaching is a humble surrender to the authority of the Scripture, which is the good news. So we're simply carriers, we're simply stewards of the good news rather than people who are experts at human behavior or whatever and passing judgment on other people's behavior. So it's a matter of subordinating our will to the authority of the Lord through the Scripture that can have the kind of result that we would want it to have rather than trying to force people in line with, with a particular position that one is promoting. So a minister who is preaching is a servant of a text and a message, and the congregant who is hearing that message is a servant or a hearer of the same text. So both are under authority. It's not as if one has an inherently superior relation to the other. So at root, perhaps, of the resistance to preaching is the notion that somehow someone is exercising power over someone else. And is supposed to be the expert on certain behavioral patterns. The misuse of the term preaching probably originates from a sense of a legalistic interpretation of the Bible that is enforced on the lives of people under a given authority. And, of course, we want to get away from that. So it really originates from a false view of Scripture and our false view of our relationship to the Scripture. You know, there are varieties of ways of approaching the Scriptures. You know, Scott, there's a devotional way, you know, just simply looking at the Bible as a stimulus to a life of devotion a uh, reminder that there's a spirit world that w- to which we have to relate. Now, if you have that attitude to the Scripture, why restrict yourself to the Scriptures? The De- devotional literature all over the world, and some of it pretty good, you know, <laughs> but originating out of, out, of, out of a very wrong motive, namely searching within ourselves rather than looking to the Lord as a source. That's a devotional approach. And, of course, then there's the a moralistic approach that the Bible is a resource for moral advice. Very, very popular and common. And then the preacher <laughs> sets him or herself nowadays as the expert to understand what the moral advice of the scripture is and and to try to dramatically apply that to life. That would be a moralistic approach. Then there's the doctrinal approach to the scripture, that it's the source of doctrinal truth. So then preaching wrongly becomes a search for the doctrinal implications of a particular text. But what we'd like to see people understand is that preaching has to be true to the nature of the Bible which is, of course, the record of divine saving activity in real planet Earth history. And as such, the Bible is unique among 
the so-called sacred scriptures of the world. I did a graduate degree in philosophy of religions at Northwestern University, and I had a wrestle with this uh, issue. What is unique about the Bible? Because if you look at the Buddhist tradition, for instance, the Noble Eightfold Pathway of the Buddhists, uh, those eightfold so-called paths, they're really commandments, are almost identical to eight of the Ten Commandments. And even uh, Gautama, who became the Buddha 600 years before Christ, said, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. So if I only need moral advice, why restrict myself to the Scripture? But the Bible is the account, the inspired, infallible account of God's saving activity in the real planet Earth history, and therefore it has to be preached according to its nature. That's what true preaching would be. Here you and I are sitting in a fairly high-tech studio, and the listener is hearing you and hearing me probably through headphones either on or in the air or possibly in a car or in a house, but not sitting in a room full of people listening to a person standing up behind a lectern or even possibly in a pulpit. There's a pretty considerable disjunction between the mode of communication that happens on Sunday morning and, Lord willing, on Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening in a Christian congregation and the way most people get most of their messages most of the time. Is the business of standing up in front of people, holding a book, and explaining the message of that book for 30 minutes, is that outmoded? And if not, why not? I do not think it's outmoded, of course, because the Bible tells us that by the foolishness of preaching, the Lord will save those who respond in faith. And you and I know, Scott, that there were periods in in the church's history where the public proclamation of the gospel was almost silenced. And if it weren't for a few itinerant monks, it may have been lost completely, and the Reformation had restored that. So ideally, preaching is face-to-face proclamation of the gospel. Now, in our technical age, of course, we have so many other means that may tend to become the message itself instead of the gospel itself. The medium can become the message, and it become a source of sort of spiritual entertainment. But God's ordained method of communication is one person bringing the message of the gospel to another, And it doesn't matter what technique we use. However, eventually, if there's a response, there has to be some kind of a a personal connect. The uh, God-ordained method of communication is person-to-person communication. And that can happen, of course, through electronic media as well. Ideally, it's a face-to-face communication. But the call of the Holy Spirit is not restricted. And therefore, we should use every means uh, available. The important thing is fidelity to the message. And you began by quoting the Apostle Paul, making reference to his language about the foolishness of preaching. If McLuhan is right and the medium is the message, is there not a sort of Christ-like message embodied in a person, we would say a man following Paul in, in 1 Timothy 2, but standing up in a pulpit or behind a lectern in front of a congregation and 
announcing a rather unlikely series of truths that a rabbi came, was completely obedient to the law of God. That rabbi wasn't fully, truly human, but also truly God, was crucified, buried, raised on the third day, and ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's an unlikely series of... It sounds like human foolishness. It sounds like foolishness. Yes, yes. And so what better medium to announce that kind of foolishness than to stand up and do something which is not maybe as improbable, but in our cultural setting, somewhat improbable, in front of people and spend 30 minutes holding a book and explaining the bad news about fall and sin and the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. So if McLuhan is right, there is a powerful message in the act of preaching. Yeah, I agree. We have to remember also that there's a corporate body and the gospel message is more often presented within the context of this corporate body, which, of course, becomes a symbol of what happens when the Holy Spirit calls people to respond in faith and draws others into that corporate body. So one-to-one witnessing of the gospel is really not formal preaching, but it is a dissemination of the gospel and biblical Tract distribution is a form of getting the gospel out, but preaching is authoritative proclamation within the context of a believing community. And it's corporate, whereas much American modern communication is individual and private. In the church, we gather together to hear the word together, to sit under the word together. And so gathering on the Lord's Day is a sort of countercultural thing to do, to hear the proclamation of this apparently unlikely message. When we come back after this break, I have a question for you, and I want to talk to you about your book a little bit, Redemption, the Triumph of God's Great Plan. All of your students, of which I am one, gratefully, know that you are a proponent of a particular kind of preaching, and that approach has come under certain criticism, that it's irrelevant, that it tends to preach the whole Bible and not just a particular text, that it doesn't have application. There are a number of criticisms, and so when we come back, I want you to address those things right after this. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888 480 8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. There's a lot of discussion, Dirk, in our age about what is called redemptive historical preaching. And there is a lot of criticism of what people think that is. What is redemptive historical preaching, and how is it being abused in some cases, and what's right with it? Well, historical preaching historical redemptive preaching is simply preaching the scripture according to his very nature, as we said earlier, which is the record of God's redeeming acts in real human history. But the New Testament itself requires that sort of approach and treatment of the scripture. 
Let me just quote to you two verses from Luke chapter 24. This is after Jesus' resurrection from the grave, the thing that startled these Greeks who didn't believe in physical resurrection, and uh, the account of Jesus meeting Cleopas and his companion on the way to Emmaus. And they were surprised that Jesus apparently wasn't aware of what had happened in Jerusalem. And so he says, How foolish you are, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. Now, all the scriptures was the Old Testament, (laughs) and uh, that's the case also when Jesus meets the disciples, and they're shocked to see the resurrected Lord. But he says to them, this is what I said to you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, the three major divisions of the Old Testament. Now, if Jesus identifies himself as the peak event to which all of prior revelational history approached, that's the way we had better approach the scriptures. And interestingly, even on the negative side, remember when the Pharisees objected to Jesus' claim that he was the Son of God? He said to the Pharisees, well, search the scriptures. You know them almost from memory. (laughs) They were were the experts. And uh, you will discover that it was I to whom the uh, scriptures anticipated. And Paul Paul says he was determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, and so he expounds the scriptures, and the only scriptures he had was the Old Testament. Now, it goes, it's obvious that the New Testament centers in Jesus Christ and the growth of the early church and respond to the resurrected Lord. But the New Testament itself tells us that that's the way we have to interpret the Old Testament scriptures. Now, why people object to that is, well, a little difficult for me to understand, except that maybe they weren't introduced to it, or maybe they have a uh, legalistic view of Scripture or uh, a moralistic view, and they simply want to distill moral advice for gracious Christian living so that the attitude may be wrong. But for me personally, for instance, my original seminary training way back many years ago emphasized distilling doctrinal truth from any one passage of the Bible. And if you sent people home more committed to Christian doctrine because of what was said, well, then you have accomplished the purpose of preaching. And I had to learn by my exposure later in the ministry to Gerhardus Voss and others, Edmund Clowney's work, that that just isn't the way it is. Now, certainly there's Christian doctrine in the Scripture, But the Bible's overriding purpose is not to tell us what systematic theology we should form. That's a very important dimension because systematic theology gives us a vision of the wholeness of Christian truth. But in preaching, we've got to be biblical theologians because we're preaching the Bible and we have to preach the Bible as it truly is. Now, just to clarify, and I I understand what you're saying, and I agree with it entirely— 
But you're not saying that there's never a place for preaching, for example, what we sometimes call the third use of the law, the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism, the direct application of the text to the Christian life. And you're not saying that there's never a time to preach Christian truth, Christian doctrine, explaining that to the congregation. No, I'm just saying that the story is bigger than just moral advice, encouragement, or doctrinal truth that's certainly there, and we should be aware of it. Let me use as an illustration the story of Joseph. Repeatedly it says, but the Lord was with him. Now a devotionalist would say, well, what does that mean to you? Well, it means means that uh, in, in all my circumstances, I should be aware that the Lord is with me. Now, the moralist would say, well, I've got to be like Joseph, and uh, when Mrs. Potiphar tempts me, I must say no. So I must be like Joseph and learn to say no. That's a moral implication. Well, it's true that in times of temptation, we should say no. And it's good to be reminded from Joseph's life that we should say no. In addition, the story of Joseph emphasizes the wonderful providence of God. You know, why would a group of Midianite merchants just happen to come by when they're considering whether to get rid of Joseph? And one of the brothers says, hey, let's make a buck on it and sell him as a slave. So in God's providence, Joseph's life was spared. Well, why was Potiphar, a compassionate slave owner, the one who purchased him? and could recognize Joseph's skills and leadership ability in the Lord's providence. You know, it was always providence, providence in the jail where he meets the butler and the baker and one of them is restored and remembers uh, Joseph to Pharaoh. And You see, the providence of God is throughout that, but that's only one-dimensional. The reason the story is in the Bible is because it's part of a bigger story, the drama of redemption, God's determination to save the lost world, and Joseph has a role to play in that. Now, God's providence is evident. He provides some moral example. We have to be very careful about that because then we're using some higher standard to determine what is moral, what is not, because maybe he was a little proud too, you know? But the reason it's in the Bible is because God wants to save a lost world, and he wants to preserve a people, and he prepares Joseph for leadership, and the people are preserved, and they end up in the promised land, and way down the historical quarter is Jesus, the peak revelational event that makes every other revelational event uh, significant. So the core of what the preacher is doing every Lord's Day— when he's in the pulpit, is to announce this story and to tell this story and to draw God's people into this story and help them find themselves in this story. And then flowing out of that, there are appropriate applications to draw. They might be moral applications. They might be applications about piety and godliness, and they might be doctrinal applications. But they come out of the story which leads to Jesus. Exactly. If I may use myself as an example, the last sermon I preached was in Sparta, Michigan. My grandson is an intern there. He had the evening service. I had the morning service. 
And my text was from Genesis chapter 3, where we are told that Adam and Eve were evicted from the Garden of Eden because of their rebellion against God. And the Garden of Eden was a place of divine human fellowship, and fellowship is broken. And then God says, you may not partake from the tree of life and live forever. See, the human solution would be, hey, okay, uh, ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the principle of death enters the human experience. Now we'll just reach out to the tree of life, and physical life would continue, but then the sin problem wouldn't have been solved. And we would have a wicked world with all its evil consequences where people never died physically. So it was God's mercy denying Adam and Eve access to this tree of life. But what does that tree of life really talk about? Well, you see, God denied Adam and Eve access to the tree of life because in his great plan, he had a tree of life that would reverse the results of the fall. And that tree of life is the cross. Because in the New Testament, I was just shocked when I was preparing the sermon that how frequently the cross in the New Testament is referred to as a tree. There's a perfectly good word in Greek for cross. But more often than not, the apostles, and not just one or two, refer to the cross as a tree. Why? Because the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the true tree of life that solves the sin problem for all who repent and believe in him. So that's God's alternative tree of life, which really is a solution that any human continuation of a tree of life, because we're always looking for extending our physical life with some scientific tree of life and the like, But God's tree of life is the cross. And that's why also the Bible ends, the very last chapter in the Bible, with a view of heaven. And in this vision of heaven that God gives John, there is included a tree of life, you know, from which the fruits are received. And of course, this is a vision. But so the Bible begins with a tree of life, ends with a tree of life, and tells us that between them, is the cross from which we partake of its spiritual fruits for all eternity. So that's the perspective, the vision that I'd like to see in the preaching students here at Westminster Seminary. Where the Bible ends is probably a good place for us to end. But before we go, can you point the listener to some significant resources? The first one, of course, I have in my hands here. It is Redemption, the Triumph of God's Great Plan, and it's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Are there other titles that the listener will want to look at? Oh, yes. Uh, Edmund Clowney's book, The Unfolding Mystery. And as a matter of fact, I'm halfway through right now one of Clowney's books also, Preaching Christ from All of Scripture. Of course, Berkauer, the early Berkauer, when he taught systematic theology as biblical theology, 
there are several others, of course, that don't come to my mind quite so readily. You mentioned Gerhardus Voss a couple of times. Are, are there particular titles of Voss that people might want to get to? You know, they they should read Bergsman, they should read Clowney, and then maybe they're ready for reading Voss, who can be a little challenging, right? He's not always user-friendly and not really aiming at a popular audience all the time. Yeah, the motivation for my writing and publishing this book, Redemption, The Triumph of God's Great Plan, which incidentally quotes Gerhardus Voss in every chapter, <laughs> happened while I was teaching at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois. And I was teaching freshmen and sophomores Introduction to Biblical Theology. It was a requirement for all the students. And I tried to get them to read Gerhardus Voss. And I even tried to walk them through it. <laughs> But I discovered that it was a little beyond that level, at least. And so I thought I would write somewhat of an introduction to biblical theology that the intelligent adult could understand so that the pattern of Scripture, at least, would be in their forefront, which would enrich all their other Bible study, Bible reading, going to church and listening to the Scripture, because I've discovered that a lot of Christians know a great deal about the Bible, the stories of the Bible, you know, but they don't know how it fits together, and especially how it peaks in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was a motivation for preparing that original book. Dirk, this has been terrific, and I'm so thankful for your time, and we will talk again. We've been talking to the Reverend Dr. Dirk Bergsma, Professor Emeritus of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. You're listening to Office Hours. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.